I'm Urban Hannon, the editor of The Josias, and this is The Josias Podcast, a conversation today about Friedrich Nietzsche. Welcome to all of our listeners. Welcome especially to our benefactors on Patreon, and welcome to my friends Ed and Pat Smith. Of course, Patrick J. Smith, or Sweet Pat Smith to his friends, is a frequent contributor to our Josias Law blog, Use at Justitium. He is a lawyer in southern Indiana, which we learned today after a little scheduling glitch is on Eastern Time. He blogs at Semi Duplex and tweets at SmithPatrick08. Pat, welcome back to the show. Glad to be back. Thanks for having if me. If I'm remembering right, I think the last time you were here was for the movie draft last summer when we successfully played it to where my oldest movie was newer than your newest movie. So That's right. I hope we can bring, bring some of that uh, same energy to this episode. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, I, I'm ready to talk about The Awful Truth, uh, The Lady Eve, uh, Sullivan's Travels. I mean, that's what we're here to talk about, right? All of the above. All right. Ed, our other guest today, is also a longtime friend of the Josias, and Ed is a particular expert on all things Charles DeConnick. Ed, it's great to have you here. And it's great to be here. All right. So it feels appropriate that today we've got three lay folk here on the show, four if you count our good producer on the sidelines there, because so far in my tenure, I have had a Cistercian, a Dominican, a Norbertine, and a Diocesan priest. So it feels right that we should fill out the full complement of the ecclesiastical hierarchy here on the Josiah's podcast, especially, jokes aside, um, since, of course, a lot of what we talk about here at the Josiah's is about how to bring Christ into every area of our life, including our political life. And it's the laity in particular who are meant to sanctify the saculum from within the saculum, right? To be the leaven in the world, helping the world rise and be filled with the grace of Christ. Um, so very glad that all of us can be here for this conversation. Now, when you're listening to this, you're listening to this at the earliest um, in early May, or if you're a Patreon subscriber, maybe late April. We normally drop things about a week early on Patreon, but we're actually pre-recording this. So today as we're recording, it is March 25th, which as you probably know, is a very important day in our holy religion and therefore, you know, in the universe. So March 25th is the day traditionally held to be the day on which the world was created the day, of course, that the word became flesh, the day the Lord was crucified, the day the world will end, for those who are Tolkien fans, it's the day the ring was destroyed, and it just so happens to be the day that Pat Smith was born. So we wish Pat a very happy birthday on this show today. Why, thank you. It's also the day Archbishop Lefebvre died. <laughs> Covering all our bases. We're talking about things that happened on March 25th. Sweet. All right. Um, we'll go ahead and get into the meat of our episode for today. So as I said, we're going to be talking today about Friedrich Nietzsche. And if you've been following the progression of our last few episodes, you might think that we've just made a very precipitous drop. We spoke first about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We followed that up with an episode about his blessed mother. And now we're talking about Nietzsche. The key there, though, the connection, is that actually, last time when we talked about our Blessed Mother, really we were talking about a text about Mary by Charles DeConnick. And today, we're following that up with another kind of lesser-known text of DeConnick. So last time we were talking, of course, about Ego Sapientia, his text about Our Lady Who Is Wisdom and what that means. But today we're looking at an even more obscure text, so a text that is not published at all, in fact, it's not in either of the collected writings of Charles DeConnick, either of those volumes. And to my knowledge, the only place you can find this at the moment, in addition to uh, in our show notes today, which our producer will take care of for us, is on the Facebook group of the Charles DeConnick Project, which is run by our friend John, now under the auspices of the Soccer Doctrina Project, which is great. Um, but it's a PDF, not even a searchable PDF, I determined in prepping for this podcast. 
um, that's an attempt to type up a bunch of handwritten notes that DeConnick had made to give these lectures about Friedrich Nietzsche. And the notes are sometimes quite disorganized. There are pages inserted. There seem to be pages missing. There are words that were illegible in the original. So whoever is transcribed them, type them up, has parentheticals guessing what word was there. Um, and yet this text, which in its uh, PDF form is 38 pages, I think, typed up in some kind of word processor. Um, this text contains so much richness and so much that I think is worth our really diving into and unpacking that we thought we'd devote an episode to it. So I thought I'd start by asking both Ed and Pat, when did you first discover these lecture notes? When's the first time that you read this text of Charles DeConnick? Ed, why don't you start for us? Uh, yeah, so I first saw this, I think it was on a Facebook it's Facebook sharing, so I wanted to share them as sort of very interesting and sort of uh, rich source for uh, sort of appropriating the good things in Nietzsche for the Thomism. Um, if I remember correctly, David Quackenbush, one of the tutors at Thomas Aquinas College, shared them in like 2012. So it's been about 10 years now. Very good. How about you, Pat? I haven't known it for 10 years. I think I saw it in the Wild West days of Facebook and saved it to a folder. Spicy PDFs. Um, <laughs> but in the years, have have come back to it. Um, yeah, I would say last couple of years anyway. We need to determine what level of Patreon subscriber one has to become before they get access to the Pat Smith spicy PDF folder. That's really. I mean, that's negotiable. Level. I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation with the uh, Patreon subscribers. Sure, Pat's DMs are open. All right. Um, I think in my case, it was uh, Father Sebastian Walsh, who I think is going to be a guest on this show actually in the coming months. Um, but Father Sebastian Walsh at St. Michael's Abbey, a Norbertine who taught me philosophy, when we were talking about the Nicomachean Ethics and talking about the magnificent man and the magnanimous man was the first time that I ever heard these lecture notes written or sorry, heard these lecture notes mentioned uh, and went and looked them up and read them right away. But the first time that I really studied them carefully, I was living up in Toronto and there was an afternoon when an oratorian brother who I was studying with, who is not really a Thomist, um, but is very much a traditionally minded Catholic uh, I think he'd describe himself as kind of a Platonist, Kantian, Scrutonian, or however we refer to the disciples of Roger Scruton, but a good man um, who was always interested to see if I could get him excited about St. Thomas in any way, because otherwise he was kind of unmoved by the common doctor. Um, we went out for an afternoon on a beautiful spring day, quite like today, at least where I am. And for the Toronto listeners among our listenership, uh, we hung out at Trinity Bellwoods for an afternoon in the park there with the cherry blossoms all around us and sat down and just read these lecture notes back and forth to each other and kind of talked about them a page at a time. And I can't say I succeeded in uh, converting this brother to Thomism, but nevertheless, at least for me, this was an experience of finding a different angle on the moral life that we're not often presented with um, that is both kind of freeing and also emboldening and a great challenge. Um, it calls us to something really great and really high. So I guess I've got a whole kind of laundry list of things here that we can talk about over the course of this episode looking at this text. But maybe first I'll just ask for some kind of first impressions or things that you want to make sure we hit in the course of this episode. Ed, how about you? What are some things from this text that you can give even just by way of sort of sample or sneak preview um, that are contained in here that we should talk about today? The, the text I most frequently come back to in this is probably the one that contrasts uh, the temperance movement or the prohibition movement with the virtue of sobriety, right? So Charles DeConnick makes a point that the point of the virtue of sobriety is to have a habit of drinking the right amount of alcohol. 
it's not about destroying the appetite for alcohol. Whereas the, the logic of prohibition is to remove a human faculty to make it easier to be virtuous, which, in, which is in fact not being virtuous at all. It's a kind of vice. Yeah, I love in here he says, I can't remember the exact line. I could scroll through and find it. But he says, America is the quintessentially Puritan country or something to those to that effect. So yeah, a, a real target of um, DeConnick's criticism in this piece, in these lectures, um, is Protestantism or Puritanism or within Catholicism, he talks about Jansenism. Um, but what all of these end up having in common is a certain pusillanimity, a certain small solidness. Um, and we'll see in more detail as we get into what he thinks in Nietzsche is important and interesting and worth kind of using as a launch pad for proper philosophy um, in Nietzsche's philosophy of the Superman has at least the opportunity to stand as a corrective to that. But yeah, I think that's spot on with prohibition. It's it's an example of trying to find, I think this is DeConnick's language, um, but if not, it, it's in keeping with his thought. It's an attempt to find a way to program things so rightly that no one actually has to be good. You find a procedure that works so well that it doesn't matter if any of the people involved are actually moral, are actually good, are actually fully realized in their humanity. And for DeConnick, that's just a tragedy. What an awful system that would be. Um, Pat, how about you? What are some things or one thing from this text that really jump out to you and that you come back to most often? Well, you've covered all of them, so I think I'm going to log off and, and you all have a nice... <laughs> have a nice... Um, no, I, I, I think the point that DeConnick begins with is not quite at the beginning, um, but it's in the first lecture. No one from a Catholic perspective is going to say Nietzsche was a, a secret Christian, even in the post-conciliar uh, parlance. And DeConnick very briefly explains why someone who said, very sharp, uh, very unpleasant, indeed even blasphemous things, um, deserves our attention. And the language that comes to my mind throughout this, especially as he gets into the later lectures and uh, begins to explain in greater detail his approach to Nietzsche. If nature has recourse to crazy men, it is perhaps because in the absence of normal competent men circumstances do not permit it otherwise to achieve its mission and this bracketing uh, is on my mind i read the other day uh harvey manfield uh, some diatribe about common good conservatism um which <laughs> not to be too sharp but if, if you want to know what the last man thinks read that piece. That having been said, um, <laughs> it, he, there's some aside in there about, you know, Nietzsche being taken up by, by wicked, uh, evil people politically as a response to liberalism. And I, that's fine as far as it goes. And certainly you're going to find plenty of people who would agree with that. Um, but I think DeConnick presents a, a different approach to Nietzsche that we take him seriously. Uh, in fact, he goes on to say, um, and in this passage, I don't know who translated this, if Ed does, the work of one who is dead becomes something sacred. We fight with our enemy until death. But once dead, his work acquires a definitive sense to which it is necessary to be resigned. It calls for respect as the body of an enemy. And certainly, uh, Nietzsche, in many ways, uh, would have said, himself, said that he himself was an enemy of Christianity in 
however you want to define that. But nevertheless, I think it's important bracketing everything he has to say within his work to, to keep de Conning's position in mind that he does have something to say to Christians, to Catholic Christians in particular, that is worth listening to and worth thinking about, even as we discover, as Deconic explains, he didn't go far enough. Uh, his The ideal of the Superman that he presents is insufficient precisely because it's not arduous enough. It doesn't call uh, man to a high enough status or, or place. It leaves him off with the eternal recurrence, which is not ultimately as arduous as what Catholics are called to. One of the most um, sort of, I don't know, shocking or mic drop moments that DeConnick gives us in this piece is right after that line that you quoted there uh, about nature having recourse to crazy men because normal competent men aren't allowing nature to achieve its mission. And he's talking about Nietzsche, right? Then immediately DeConnick quotes, my ways are not your ways, says the Lord. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's try to give a little bit of a big picture sketch of, um, what DeConnick is up to in these lectures for our listeners. So he's describing, right, uh, a kind of broad brush retelling of the history of philosophy here. So DeConnick identifies what he thinks are three moments in the history of philosophy. Um, and he says also that, of course, philosophy is one of only many functions in human life, but it's one that is important. And whether it's causing others or caused by others, at any rate, we can abstract it out and use it at least uh, as one metric of how a society is doing. And so he looks at the history of philosophy and sees basically a series of waves and three high points, three crests of those waves in particular. So in the ancient world, he points back and says, you have a crest when we get to Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And then you have a kind of descent. Um, metaphysical contemplation is hard, and people get tired and cease to be able to do it. Um, and then you have a descent. So you have a descent maybe into the kind of minor Socratics and these very moral philosophy, almost kind of self-help moral philosophy, heavy folk, um, the Stoics, the Epicureans, eclectic groups, whatever. Um, and philosophy takes this kind of descent. And then he thinks that in the late antique period, you have another crest. And here he identifies Plotinus, St. Augustine, and of course, the Areopagite. And he sees these three as representing another crest up the wave of philosophy. But then he thinks it descends again, um, not to use, you know, the kind of um, pejorative Dark Ages language, but at any rate, it is true that philosophy uh, is not at a high point um, overall in those centuries, in the kind of early Middle Ages. And then in the high middle ages, he thinks we return to a place where we have a real crest and maybe the highest of the crests when we have St. Thomas Aquinas. And then at one point later in the text, as he's retelling this history, he includes also St. Albert the Great. Um, and of course you could include others of their contemporaries as well. And then again, he notes that after St. Thomas and St. Albert and that generation, we begin again a descent um, he talks about philosophy becoming just more and more verbal and what had been metaphysical becomes merely semantic and then a shift altogether away from speculative philosophy into moral philosophy, which on the one hand is harder, but on the other hand is somehow more immediate to us. Um, and so it's, it's harder in the sense that it's supposed to be harder because you're supposed to, in order to do it well, have done the speculative work first. Um, but people unwilling or unable to do the speculative work start attaching to the moral um, and often doing it quite poorly. So what's interesting for St. Thomas, or, <laughs> well, what's interesting for Charles DeConnick about this period after St. Thomas is that it plummets down and down, and he looks to Nietzsche as maybe a moment 
where it could start to turn up. It's not that he thinks that Nietzsche himself is a crest, though he does think that Nietzsche has the potential to be the most important of the modern philosophers. But my impression is more that he sees Nietzsche as the kind of turning point. Um, someone who's more a mathematician than me, remind me what the point of a parabola is called when you start to turn in the other direction of your slope. Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Okay. Well, all of our listeners who are laughing at us know what I'm talking about uh, and the word that I can no longer remember. But he thinks that maybe Nietzsche represents one of these and that now springboarding from Nietzsche, philosophy could come to a much better place again. Um, and so these lectures set about looking at how Nietzsche relates to everything that's come before him. Um, and he sets that up. So let's look, if anyone wants to follow along at home with this PDF we'll post, uh, what I'm about to describe is on kind of pages five through seven. Um, he talks about one of the things that Nietzsche gets in touch with as being the fact that man is really the reason for the being of the whole cosmos. So everything else in the material creation is somehow ordered to man. He says, it is man who is the first in intention and who will be the last in execution. Um, now, within the human order, he then sees that the universe aiming at man can't just be about producing a whole lot of men, right? A multitude is not an end. A mere quantitative uh, multiplication is not something that could be aimed at. So even within this human end, there still has to be a hierarchy. There has to be superior ones who are truly aimed at and he says, all cosmic revolutions are propter implendum numerum electorum, that in some way, everything that happens in the universe is for the sake of the elect. That's scripture. Um, Romans, uh, it's Thomas's commentary, I think, on Romans 8.28, uh, but it's the point there in St. Paul. So this is where DeConnick thinks that we can understand Nietzsche's Superman in a more positive way. Um, so what do y'all think, Ed or Pat, um, whoever would like to chime in, how, how does Nietzsche fit into this, uh, this picture I've been describing of both where philosophy has gone before him leading up to him, but also in terms of understanding reality itself, which is much more important than the history of philosophy, um, understanding reality itself as somehow aiming at men and at excellent men. Somewhere towards the end, he uh, talks about Nietzsche's, um, he puts it as sort of an expression of the desire of the cosmos for the great man. I think, um, like, like if, if, if matter and the cosmos is all ordered to the great man, then in the per periods where the, those men are lacking, you will eventually find someone like Nietzsche who's, um, who expresses the desire for, for the great man to come back. Yeah, there's something to the effect, right, of a sort of revenge of form. Yeah. Um, a revenge of habit in particular against, yeah, a modern period that systematically tried to make form um, and make habit either unnecessary or even seen as evil, as limiting, um, as, yeah, you think of people like Rousseau as someone who really comes under uh, DeConnick's criticism here um, as basically making a god out of prime matter. It's the kind of David of Dinant um, famous mistake that's one of the only places where St. Thomas basically makes fun of someone. Um, but David of Dinant uh, confusing prime matter with God, St. Thomas says, is Stultissimus, um, is just extremely, this man is extremely stupid for making this mistake. But DeConnick thinks that Rousseau has done something like that in this longing for a pure, pristine, untouched state of nature, that basically what's going on there is a longing for indetermination. Um, but it's not matter that's perfect, certainly not prime matter that's perfect. It's the substance perfected not only by its substantial form, but in the case of 
us who are not our own perfection, unlike God, uh, it's also that um, composite perfected by lots and lots of accidental forms, including the habits. And so Nietzsche in some way, um, inchoately, I think we'd say, represents a desire to get back to determination, get back to that which makes us great and excellent. And remember for de Conning that at least in two places, the lectures here and the um, principle of the new order, which is the lecture appended usually to uh, primacy of the common good, talks about the Enlightenment project um, as in some way seeking this indetermination and uh, the possibilities, at least seeming possibilities, I think we would say that there are illusory possibilities represented by this in um, indeterminism. And it it's interesting to see here, because I don't think in Principle of the New Order he gets into this. But he does here, obviously, at some length. It's interesting to see Nietzsche as the beginning in some way of a reaction by nature, even, to this rejection of form and determinacy, um, which has, particularly if you look at Principle of the New Order next to this, which we're not really here to do today, but very interesting to consider even some of the the more political consequences of all of this, uh, since I don't think they can be excluded altogether. Yeah. So, Ed, it looks like you found one of the texts you were looking for. Yeah, so he he's talking about, uh, this is in the context of describing Nietzsche's uh, The Birth of Tragedy, um, and he says, uh, why must this reactionary philosophy come because nature will infallibly attain its term because Dionysus is immortal, because vengeance is essential essential to nature. One can infuse it up to a certain limit, but one cannot destroy it. When men become incapable of affirming it, it is affirmed by its very self, and it affirms itself in the strangely absurd system of Nietzsche. So, I mean, the idea here is, right, is if there is a a natural desire of the, the human mind for these great men, when you have a philosophical system that sort of excludes their possibility, you will eventually have some expression of the desire for someone who will come and, you know, put things back in order. Uh, and that's just because of the nature, what man is. Yeah, it's sort of, I mean, Deconic is not under any illusions that the angelic hierarchy and the human hierarchy operate exactly the same way. We have important differences between us and angels, uh, one of which is that we're all a single species and each of them is a species unto itself. Um, so we don't have exactly the same kind of hierarchy by nature that they have. But nevertheless, he points out, and this, you know, goes back to Dionysius the Areopagite, um, that we still do have our participation in that. We see that ecclesiastically, which Dennis spells out in uh, the ecclesiastical hierarchy that comes after the celestial hierarchy about the angels. But here we see it looking at what uh, DeConnick describes as three kind of levels of men. You have in the middle the vast, vast majority of men who are um, reasonable but quite ordinary. And then you have a minority below them who are the imbeciles, nature um, sort of having these gaps. But then you also have what are an irregularity or something that is also statistically speaking a gaff, but that DeConnick and Nietzsche think is actually what the whole thing is aimed at, which is an even smaller minority that's actually on top. It's men who by the majority may be mistaken for imbeciles in some way, but are actually the greatest of all. Um, and these are, you know, the supermen. And it's interesting that 
When DeConnick is talking about Superman here, he's not really making a moral evaluation one way or another. Um, he's not just talking about those who happen to be the greatest, um, considered according to the only metric that ultimately matters, right, which is charity. But instead, he's looking at the kind of size of the soul in some way and the sort of potency that an individual has for great good or great evil. Um, and there's something about that that, of course, today strikes us as really offensive in our egalitarian world where our whole kind of intellectual custom is formed by this idea that everyone by nature has to be equal in dignity, et cetera. I mean, we have our Christian ways of expressing that. We also have very non-Christian ways of expressing that today. And there's something there that's true, right? Um, but if you stop the story there, you end up, Deconic thinks, settling for something that is really inadequate and even morally really inadequate um, if all you try to do is kind of aim not just at the golden mean between virtue and vice, right, but aim at the kind of statistical average of all men and settle for being, um, yeah, in some way, typical, usual, expected, fitting in, et cetera. There's, there's an interesting uh, gap when you compare this to the the uh, Ego Sapientia, um, thinking of the feast, right? Because in Ego Sapientia, he holds that our Blessed Mother is the primary part of the cosmos and the intrinsic common good, as well as a separate co common good of the cosmos. So if we're talking about great men, the greatest is our Blessed Mother, and yet she never occurs in this particular text. Well, she does, right? At the very end. Yeah, I yeah. So this that. is where the text actually <laughs> finishes. Um, but, you know, spoilers, it's okay if we, <laughs> we jump there now. Um, so he's talking about, oh, he yeah. brings up Christ a couple times in this text, right? Um, talking about how Christ really is the Superman that Nietzsche ought to have been looking for. Um, the Superman who would have been, uh, and who is, um, great enough for, F, for us to actually strive after, whereas Nietzsche's Superman, in the end, it turns out, are not. Um, and again, talking about the way the, the mass of men responds to a Superman, we look at what happened with the incarnation um it ended in the crucifixion thankfully it didn't finally end there because of the power of god but in terms of what we did with it that is where the mass of men took the incarnate god um but then having talked about christ at the very end on the last page uh he has a reflection on our lady he says because so this is in a section where deconic saying i'm not properly a theologian, especially not properly a theologian in these series of lectures. I'm doing philosophy. I'm looking at what natural reason can know, but there are things here that a theologian might investigate further. And then he goes into all of this. Um, and he says here, because it was not the first of the angels, nor some flashy human genius, but a simple woman, a mother, a virgin who led a life so hidden and of whom the angel said that she was full of grace and that the Lord was with her. It is she who has been elevated not only to the summit of the human hierarchy, but to the summit of the universal hierarchy, the one we invoke as the queen of the angels. So thankfully, even in the midst of, you know, searching for great men um, and looking after the philosopher of the supermen, Charles DeConnick is under no illusions about what's been revealed to us about what this greatness actually looks like. Grace perfects nature, but not without surprises. Okay, one thing in this text that I think is the context in which I really first encountered it and heard about it, thinking back to what I was saying about my philosophy classes with Father Sebastian Walsh, I remember him really emphasizing when we started ethics that today we have a conception that ethics is about avoiding sin, that ethics is about avoiding evil, that that's what morality is. And I love here when DeConnick, this is on page 13, um, DeConnick explains within the context of the history of philosophy that that is kind of what happened to ethics, that we moved from um, 
speculative philosophy to semantic philosophy to practical philosophy. And then within practical philosophy, we shifted to just talking about avoiding sin. Um, so all we ended up doing was talking about sin, which, you know, there's uh, the sort of complaint that all traditional Catholics do, all uh, Orthodox Catholics do, is wave their finger and talk about sin. Well, I don't think that's true. But if that were true, that actually would be a problem. It's true that we need to talk about sin, but sin is not the point of the story. And so DeConnick is really good here. A quote from these notes, he says, the goal of morality is not to avoid sin, but to acquire strength, habits which elevate to the level of an ultimate destiny. And of course, once you've attained to those habits, once you've attained to that level of an ultimate destiny, you do then avoid sin. Because if you don't avoid sin, you're both going to lose the level of the destiny he's describing there, which is your end, and lose the habits. But the goal in it all, the thing that you're finally seeking, is not just the avoiding of evil. Because to make that what morality is about is to give sin way too much credit. Um, it's accidental in a certain way to the moral life that sins need to be avoided. What's essential to the moral life, what the moral life is actually about, is getting the good and being good in order to get the good. So the way Father Sebastian put this to us that I think is just so perfect is morality is about avoiding sin, but it is more about doing the good than avoiding the evil. It gets to be about both those things, but it's about them in an order. And it's always more about doing the good than avoiding the evil. And throughout this, on that note, what is astonishing about this, these notes as a whole um, is how sharp DeConnick is, uh, particularly in his criticism of decadent, I think he would say submoral theology. Very early on, when he's talking about sort of the trajectory downward, he says, scholastic quarrels become more and more verbal. Dogmatic theology gives way to moral theology, an incontestable sign of metaphysical decadence. Moral theology, thus decapitated, degenerates into theology of sin. The essence of virtue becomes pure absence of sin. And then he really hammers in the last line, during periods of decadence, theologians speak only of sin. Evil becomes a good to defend. This is, I mean, it's impossible to uh, ignore current debates in theology, particularly moral theology. Uh, but this is a very sharp point to make at any time. Uh, and he goes on in the same vein um, particularly when he talks about, for Nietzsche and I think for de Conning, the conflict between the Superman and the great mass of people who aren't Superman, where he, he really does seem to endorse Nietzsche's distinction between a sort of, and I'll use the common terms however inappropriate they may be in 2023, between a master morality and a slave morality, um, and even certainly takes positions that I think as, and I hope listeners do go through the, the notes um, and read them. I think people would be astonished uh, the extent to which DeConnick is a, and is here very comfortable with Nietzsche's criticism of a certain kind of morality. Now, one point that I, wish I'd made earlier, but I, I will take this opportunity to make. Um, it's really important to remember some biographical points about Nietzsche, namely that he was not a Roman Catholic. His father and his grandfather were Lutheran ministers in Germany. Um, fairly prominent Lutheran ministers. I think his grandfather even had some ecclesiastical position in the German Lutheran hierarchy. Um, his father was probably on track 
for a successful ecclesiastical career with the Lutherans, but uh, developed a neurological, psychological ailment that ultimately led to his early death. Um, and Nietzsche was then raised by his mother in his grandmother's house, uh, who was a quite a uh, quite a domineering figure, I think. Although even as late as Ecce Homo, Nietzsche's father, Pastor Nietzsche, was a very large figure in Nietzsche's imagination, um, particularly his final illness uh, before he died again young. Um, and I think that weighed heavily on Nietzsche. But I think it's important always to emphasize when Nietzsche's talking about things that Christianity is or isn't set against, he, he is talking... I think, for the most part, about liberal German Christianity of the 19th century. Um, yeah, and DeConnick thinks so too, right? Yes. When he looks yeah. at, at Nietzsche's evaluation, he says, you know, this is actually true as far as it goes. It's just that the only Christianity Nietzsche knew was this Jansenist or Protestant Christianity that does basically subscribe to the slave morality. And Nietzsche's right that that's terrible. Although I, I would point out that in the first essay of the genealogy of morals, Nietzsche quotes with horror the bit from the supplementum to the Summa about the blessed rejoicing and the sufferings of the damned. What what That's I find neat. interesting about that is um, at the beginning of the Antichrist, he talks about how it is um, in his mind necessary that a god have some notion of revenge or something like that and part of his big critique of christianity in that work um has to do with with that but he he seems in the genealogy of morals completely aghast at the what he thinks i think is the revenge embodied by this one point in aquinas which i think he gets wrong and sorry, just clarifying antecedents, which you think Nietzsche gets wrong, right? Yes, yes, Not yes, yes. you think Aquinas gets wrong. Great. Yeah, no, Nietzsche gets it wrong. I think he misreads Aquinas. Um, notwithstanding his citation, I, I don't think he reads that article correctly. Um, yeah. But uh, as Walter Kaufman, one of Nietzsche's translators and popularizers in the United States, uh, puts it in, I think, his introduction to the Antichrist, the if you're if we're going to spend all day worrying about what Nietzsche gets wrong, it's it's sort of a pointless task. He gets a lot wrong, but that's not really the point. Yep. So why don't we talk about these two virtues a little bit? That for Deconic are the two virtues in Aristotle's ethics, and then um, picked up very much by Saint Thomas, that he thinks are what Nietzsche is reacting to the absence of in his day. Um, and these two virtues, of course, are magnificence and magnanimity. Um, magnanimity is uh, not a word we use often enough in English, and it's a bit hard to say. Um, in fact, I had a teacher who is a great Thomist who still to this day pronounces it, let's see if I can even do this, um, magnanimity, magnanimity, there we go. Um, phenomenal Thomist, can't say the word to save his life. But um, all that means is great souledness, right? It's talking about having a big soul. Um, and so these two virtues are virtues that are not comfortable for us today. And in fact, I can't remember where this is. Maybe someone else knows uh, here. But Alistair McIntyre, maybe it was a Notre Dame talk a few years ago, I can't remember, talking about Aristotle's ethics and how well they've held up or haven't held up uh, and trying to kind of cut a middle road and defend some things and defend kind of the big principles, but also say that, of course, we know he's wrong about these things, reaches precisely for this to say that Christianity, um, which is a religion that teaches us humility, has no place for um, these kind of virtues of greatness that Aristotle extols that these are things that get left behind when Christianity appropriates Aristotle, uh, which is a strange thing to say if you've read St. Thomas Aquinas, as I know he has. But anyway, that is at least McIntyre's 
um, sort of take on this. It is decidedly not Charles DeConnick's take. So can't go anywhere without you beefing with Big Mac. Yeah, here are we. Um, but, Although uh, I, I would emphasize, just as as we set out, DeConnick draws on Nietzsche's extensive project of the will to power. Um, and I'm not sure Nietzsche would have said it's fortitude and then the parts of fortitude that we, we can talk about. But I think DeConnick's right that when Nietzsche says the will to power, although he can get very metaphysical about it and in Heidegger's course of Nietzsche lectures, you can read all about what Martin Heidegger thought about all the metaphysical aspects of the will to power. But I think de Conning has has the correct position that when Nietzsche says will to power, what he means is fortitude. And then we can go from there into the parts of fortitude. Um, but it is not as though Nietzsche's discussing this in his works, first of all, in any systematic way, because then I don't know how far into the weeds of the publication history of Friedrich Nietzsche we want to get. Um, <laughs> yes, there is a book called The Will to Power. No, it is not a systematic treatise or a grand statement of The Will to Power. It is fragments put together by his sister and another editor yeah. um, that was published under that title and was sort of taken as a definitive work. I think the modern consensus is, while the fragments are valuable, the work itself as systematized represents his sister Elizabeth as much as it represents his thought. Uh, the Antichrist was the first volume of Nietzsche's planned revaluation of all values. Yeah, my understanding of my understanding of contemporary Nietzsche scholars too is that they tend to think that any attempt at systemization here is already to have betrayed Nietzsche's project, which on their reading tends to be deliberately anti-systematic in some way, much more a destructive force than a kind of organized, careful encyclopedia, encyclopedic constructive force in some way. Particularly when we get into the work of the 1886, 1887, 1888, yeah. He doesn't, he, he alludes to it sort of in passing, but it's, it's worth mentioning that with Charles DeConnick, the point of studying historical philosophers isn't necessarily to know what they thought. It's to know, it's to find something in them that we can use to think about reality for ourselves. And so this, this sort of not getting Nietzsche necessarily right on the text, but getting something useful out of Nietzsche is sort of in line with how he approaches just about everyone, you know, everyone in history. He doesn't, to do philosophy isn't to, you know, be an antiquarian. It's not, you know touring a museum of things other people have thought is to attempt to think and judge reality for yourself. And I think that's an important thing to take to sort of remember when reading his commentary on Nietzsche or his commentary on Hegel and Luther. Although I will say, I think DeConnick gets Nietzsche right. And in fact, probably gets Nietzsche more right than Nietzsche got Nietzsche. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well said. Um, okay, so Pat, you told us that these two virtues, magnanimity and magnificence, are somehow parts of fortitude. Let's take these one by one real quick. So magnificence first. Um, what is this virtue? What are we talking about when we speak of the magnificent man? Well, living in a decadent age, it's going to be hard for me to talk about magnificence without immediately bringing puritanical Jansenist parsimony to it. Well, let me read the translation and then magnificence concerns enormous expenses in view of great honorable works. That is to say, disinterested ones by opposition to useful works. It supposed an aesthetic taste and is opposed thus to vulgar profusion. Uh, for example, that of the musical comedies of Hollywood in which there is no proportion between the expense and the intrinsic value of the work. I'm very sorry to have to say that to you. I'm glad we got to bring this back to the movie draft. Very good. 
In Magnificence, he goes on a little later to say, In Magnificence, there is all the same a certain disproportion between the expenses and the work, in this that the expenses are greater than the work, but that does not harm the work. Uh, on great works, he spends largely and with joy. When, when Aristotle talks about this, he talks about how the Magnificent Man almost necessarily has to spend too much, because if you just sort of neglect some detail... Uh, you can ruin the whole project. Like, you know, you set out a great banquet, but you serve it on plastic plates to save money. That's going to ruin the entire banquet for everyone. It's interesting that sometimes the way I think we're taught just in very, like, simple, introductory, popular lessons about Aristotle's ethics and the golden mean, we take the mean there to be between two vices, as though we're supposed to stick the mean right directly in the middle. But actually, Aristotle himself explicitly says that's not what you do. We're not talking about an arithmetic mean. We're not talking about just the halfway point between virtue and vice. And it happens that with some virtues, the golden mean is much closer to one extreme than the other. Um, so you think about this, for example, with um, unchastity uh, versus um, something like insensitivity, um, the, the mean of chastity is not insensitivity. There's something vicious. There's something defective. There's something wrong about insensitivity. Nevertheless, the mean of chastity is going to end up looking more like insensitivity than it looks like the most um, sort of debauched expressions of lust. Uh, and likewise here, when it comes to our generosity, when it comes to our spending, when it comes to our giving away, um, there's on the one hand being cheap and frugal um, and very kind of miserly with our money uh, or our goods, whatever we're talking about. And at the other extreme, there's a kind of prodigality. There's giving too much, too lavishly, being reckless in the amount you give. And all of these thinkers, Aristotle, St. Thomas, Deconic, are very clear that the proper golden mean here of liberality, which is a virtue, is a tremendously good word that unfortunately the liberals have ruined for us, but liberality being liberal in this virtuous sense comes much, much closer to being prodigal, comes much, much closer to giving too much away, um, to sharing everything. You can restrain that a little bit. You can draw that back in uh, if someone's at that extreme and bring them to the mean, whereas if someone is unwilling to give altogether, um, they're much, much farther away from being able to be brought to virtue here. So magnificence, though, is not merely liberality because anyone can be liberal, right? Anyone is supposed to be liberal in this virtuous sense. Anyone is supposed to give away um, and help others. But magnificence is more than that. Magnificence is bigger and better than that because, as Ed said there, or sorry, Pat said there, quoting that text, Magnificence concerns enormous expenses in view of great honorable works. Um, so DeConnick will say on the next page, a gift to the poor is not a gesture of magnificence, but of justice or of liberality. In the eyes of the mass, mag the mass of men, you know, magnificence is a waste because it is not useful. And in the ethics of slaves, pure liberality and magnificence while they do not deny their idealistic value, are always inopportune. There was much poverty in Palestine at the time of our Lord, but let us recall the passage of St. Mark the Evangelist. Of course, uh, referring to Judas, wanting to not waste, quote-unquote, um, these precious things on Christ and anointing him, but rather giving to the poor. I, I was going to say that I think this gets to an important point in DeConning's reading of Nietzsche by way of example, the mass of men who are not supermen, who are not magnificent men, will appeal to prudence. They will appeal to a cramped, twisted version of prudence to justify not doing magnificent things and indeed justify hating the magnificent man. Um, mm -hmm. And th this conflict, and really throughout the course of lectures, DeConnick constantly refers to this conflict between the mass of men and the superman. 
um, is is an important point for Nietzsche and for DeConnick that I think nowhere more than with the money stuff, um, particularly in the American context, and indeed I hate to say it, particularly in the ecclesiastical context in the United States and in Europe too, do you see this conflict? Um, and it's strange to say, but you talk about, particularly since 1965 in the church in Western Europe, United States, people who spend a lot of money on the church come in for a drubbing because, well, you could give that money to the poor. We could, we could say what Judas said or what plenty of social improvers have said. Um, why are you spending it on beautiful vestments? Why are you spending it on beautiful altar vessels? Why are you spending it on beautiful buildings? And it's interesting to see this very common argument. You can find it on Twitter today, I'm sure. Sort of lead back to this much more serious point about virtue that DeConning's making here. I love that he even compares it to God himself. He says, why does God perfect, so God who is perfect, who's totally self-sufficient, has every good in himself, why does he create not having any need of the creature? And DeConnick says, a liberal man, a magnificent man, can understand it. God wants to communicate without having any need of profit. A stingy man cannot comprehend it. And so this virtue of magnificence, this virtue of giving greatly, um, of doing greatly by one's works, by one's gifts. Um, yeah, is something that is really, really important to having these great men. The, the other virtue that goes with that, that DeConnick will highlight here, is this virtue of magnanimity. Um, magnanimity. Uh, there you go. Um, which looks not to these concerns outside, this diffusion outside, but rather magnanimity concerns the subject considered in himself. Um, so if magnificence is about this kind of overflow outward, magnanimity is about the man himself. And as I say, this, this kind of great souledness. So in terms of the virtue of magnanimity, what do y'all think about this um, today? How should we preach the virtue of magnanimity, um, not necessarily from pulpits, but in our everyday lives? How should we encourage others to it? How should we, in our own examinations of conscience, look at, have I been magnanimous? Father Sebastian, I remember commenting on this, that never in, I don't know how many years a priest he is now, but many years a priest, never once has someone come into his confessional and confessed, Father, I was not magnanimous this week. I was pusillanimous this week. And obviously some of that is a terminology issue, right? But a lot of that's not just terminological. It's not that people are reaching to say this and just don't have the words. It's that as we evaluate ourselves and how we're living, we don't evaluate ourselves against the standard that has actually been set for us, where be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, is not just about avoiding all these bad things, but is about becoming great and striving for the great, to be great, to do great for God. And so much of our lives, right, is just a kind of copying out of that, a chickening out from that, uh, settling, thinking of um, the recently deceased Pope Benedict XVI's famous words, settling for comfort when we were created for greatness. So how should we go about this? How should we try to bring magnanimity back into the moral discourse and the moral life. It, and I would go back to the point I, I mentioned just a couple of minutes ago. There are false notions of prudence that will always seem very attractive. And indeed, Nietzsche and DeConnick, I think, are on the same page, that this sort of great soul way of life is hard. It requires um, all sorts of things, most of which are free, uh, being an ascetic doesn't cost any money necessarily, uh, but that's still hard. We're in Lent. We're recording this in Lent anyway, and um, it certainly you know, doesn't cost anything to fast in, in terms of money, but 
there are all sorts of people who might find fasting unpleasant or difficult. Um, it, but there will always be a, a sort of easy voice of prudence when contemplating great honorable deeds that says ingratiatingly, well, that's not really necessary, is it? That's a little, that's going a little over the top, right? Um, maybe you should take a step back. And this is not, as you say, the sort of, the sort of thing that we're called to, although we are certainly called to be prudent, but we're not called to a sort of false prudence. I think also though, when here, like just as magnificence has a corresponding small virtue, the liberality, which most of us find ourselves in a position to exercise more often than magnificence. Uh, so too, there's a corresponding small virtue for mag magnanimity that the, the proper love of honor doesn't have a name. But, but in both cases, you have to have the small virtue first. So, I mean, one thing that's practical here is, like, when we are honored, do we accept the honor, right? Like, a lot of people are very uncomfortable with someone honoring them. Mm. And that that itself is a, the kind of weakness that Charles de Conic is opposing. Yeah, that's a really good point. But... He even says as much, right? He says, yeah. theologians have been able to see the danger of vanity and magnanimity. And as they ha have always more fear of vanity than peacelanimity, one understands their preference. But that is still not to miss yep. Vanity is less grave than pusillanimity. It's the very next line there. Yeah, so again, this is another case where the golden mean is not right down the middle. But you should... I mean, every individual has to evaluate what they're actually tempted to write. But in general, we'd say you should be aiming closer to vanity than to pusillanimity. Um, aim up. And in both these cases, right, like, we naturally want to keep our money for ourselves. We naturally, um, we naturally want one of the extremes and, and, in the, and then the main, in the main here. And, and so the, the, the reason Aquinas says, like, magnificence is more like, more like, you know, prodigality and magnanimity is more like vanity is that in a lot of cases, our, natural inclination like the, the the statistically normal inclination is towards towards the opposite to keep the all one's money for oneself and to kind of avoid doing you know being a great person because that's hard well i'm looking down my list of things that i had for us to talk about and i admit there's still a lot in this text that's great um that we didn't get to but i'm also keeping an eye on our time and thinking that it's probably for the best, not only for us here recording, um, but also for the uh, listeners who have just heard quite a lot on Aristotle, Aquinas, Deconic, Nietzsche. Um, if we start moving toward a conclusion, so just to shout out a few things that are in this text that you um, may want to find for yourself and search through. There's actually an entire, I think, two lectures on Nietzsche's work, The Origin of Tragedy Among the Greeks, about the Apollonian and the Dionysian, or the Apollinian, um, I think is how Nietzsche scholars insist we say that now. Whatever. Apollo and Dionysius. Um, and then about, of course, the the two different um, sort of contrarieties of good and bad versus good and evil, the master and slave moralities there. There's also uh, just a great romp through the history of philosophy that includes the great uh, line about Francisco Suarez that I cannot believe that Ed has not said so far today. Uh, do you have that at your fingertips, Ed? Do you want to share that with us before we go? That, uh, with Suarez, we were present at the solemn inauguration of the supremacy of the imagination in the domain of philosophy. Each time that he abandoned St. Thomas, whom he read attentively, he does it by reason of the order of the imagination. <laughs> very good and I would add um, real quick anyway the, the history of philosophy is well worth your time even if you don't have a huge interest in Nietzsche or how Nietzsche intersects with uh, Aristotelian and Thomistic morality his history of philosophy is fantastic uh, and 
these were lectures, so it's not, you know, volumes and volumes. Again, jumping in with antecedent clarification, but his here is Deconic, yeah. Deconic's yeah, history yeah, yeah. of philosophy. Fantastic. I, I'm I'm uninterested in Nietzsche's history of Greek tragedy. <laughs> um yeah, there's also on page 29 a really fantastic conversation that's probably a bit too difficult to do the groundwork on a podcast we'd need to get into it. But he has a whole thing too about how really the modern mistake comes down to a confusion of the one that's convertible with being and the one that's the principle of number. Um, that these two ones, these two different um, meanings of the word one get conflated and confused and that leads to just unbelievable um, speculative errors and moral failings. So that's a fun discussion too. Um, but I think in terms of DeConnick's notes on Nietzsche, we'll go ahead and end it there. Pat and Ed, is there anything y'all have coming out that you're working on, places our listeners can find you that you'd like to shout out before we go? You can always find me on the website. The website, Just, you in know, this case, of course, being Twitter. Twitter.com. It, it may be getting terrible, unusable, but, you know, I haven't stuck with it this long to abandon it simply because it's hard to use. <laughs> and, Ed, if not uh, places people can find you, anything you'd like to shout out that people should search out, people should read? Not only reading this, but I think reading Ego Sapiencia for a positive description of a Superman is something I would, you know, highly recommend. One can also find a lot of these ideas in a uh, letter he wrote, but possibly never sent to Mortimer, Mortimer Adler. Is that in the public domain? Can we post a PDF of that too? If one Googles it, one can find it. <laughs> <All right. laughs> very good we will go ahead and end it there thank you so much to ed and to pat smith for coming on for the show thanks again to joe for producing the episode and to jonathan colbreth for our music thank you to all of our listeners and thank you especially to our good benefactors on patreon if you enjoyed this episode of the josias podcast and you would like to hear more like it in the future please head over to patreon.com slash josias to help make that possible. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook if you don't already. Check out our law blog, Use at Justitium, and find us, most importantly, at thejosias.com. <laughs>